0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Mark Belmar, Distinguished McKnight University Professor, Distinguished University Teaching Professor, and Northrop Professor in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, where he also directs the Center for International Food and Agricultural Policy. He's also currently a co-editor of the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. And his research, as you might guess, focuses on agricultural economics and applied econometrics. Um, but today we're going to talk about his new book, Doing Economics, What You Should Have Learned in Grad School But Didn't, from MIT Press. As you can tell from the title, this isn't uh, about research specifically, but, or about any specific area of research, but rather offers advice about the job of being an economics professor and how to succeed at it. Um, I think it's a really excellent, clear-eyed view of the profession, and a lot of the lessons in it are, are applicable to other parts of academia as well. Um, Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so first, um, how did you come to decide to write this book? You know, why is this book necessary, and, and who do you think should be reading it?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I. This started out as a consulting contract for the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I was in Rome in 2018 for an event at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, and I had drinks one evening with a colleague uh, who I'd known for quite a quite a while, who is the director of research and impact assessment at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and she mentioned that I should do something with a lot of the stuff that I had written over the years on my blog. And she said, well, she'd just taken over this RIA shop, the Research and Impact Assessment at IFAD. And she'd found that the papers that were written by her staff, which a lot of them she thought should be published in, in scientific journals, were not written very well. They weren't structured the right way and stuff. And she, she thought, well, why don't you just write a guide as to how to write papers and, and you'll do that for us under a consulting contract? And um, so I did that, but I made sure to kind of keep the intellectual property rights to it. And that became chapter two of the book. And chapter two was what I used, you know, that that working paper, how to write papers. And I I forget exactly the title. It's still floating out there. It's still on my website. Um, And it turns out that when I, I posted it on my blog and tweeted about it, people, you know, people flocked to it. And I thought, hey, maybe there's something there. And, uh, and when COVID hit, I realized that I had to do something different to just keep my sanity, uh, something different from my regular job, which was teaching on zoom at that point, And my other new job, which was homeschool teacher for my, for my then four and a half year old daughter. Um, and that project to keep my sanity was how about I write a book on the basis of this. And so I wrote a proposal and, and, uh, the, the teaser chapter that I sent university presses was this chapter two, which is about writing papers. Um, And so that's how it came to be. Um, And it's, it's meant to be a guide. It's meant to be a guide for early career researchers, first and foremost, meaning graduate students, newly minted PhDs. But it's not just for early career researchers. I mean, I think, you know, people like you and I, who often have to answer the same questions from graduate students about, very specific things, right? Where do I go to get grants? How do you write a successful grant proposal? How do I give a talk at a conference? How do I, you know, how do I act as a discussant in a conference? What does a reject and resubmit mean? I think even senior economists could benefit from kind of having that on their shelf and saying, hey, you know what, like I answer this question six times a year, why don't you go check out chapter four of this book or chapter two of this book?
0: And I think it goes yeah, beyond that. I think that. even for those of us who, who uh, you know, have obviously worked out our own uh, solutions or approaches to each of these questions, it's always, uh, it can be useful to like, you know, it was interesting for me to like read your, your take on things. And, you know, some things I agreed with and some things were a little bit different and some things I hadn't thought of. So um, it was helpful in that respect as well. You know, we're all still sort of, we're all perfecting our craft, uh, even, even, you know, year, a few years in.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I don't pretend to have kind of a monopoly on truth on those things. This is stuff that has worked for me. And other people will say, well, you know what, you know, take some, leave some. And I think that's perfectly fine. I wanted to kind of give an, a, a big picture view of of what I've learned, what I've figured out on my own uh, over the years. To just to kind of try to jumpstart the process for people because it can be so can be so inefficient and costly in terms of figuring out stuff and making your own mistakes if i can help people avoid mistakes you know the book will have been a success by then
0: yeah i mean absolutely i definitely there's there's so many things that you kind of learn by practice or from you know people informally like pointing things out to you kind of one of one at a time but there's not kind of a uh yeah not like a standard resource so you know like you say like for the example like how do you write a paper i think you know i learned how to write a paper by writing papers and by reading papers and then sometimes thinking about like, how is this paper structured? But there wasn't sort of, you know, a guideline that said, Oh, this is kind of the standard paper. And this is how it goes. And no one, you know, talked us through it. They talked about, I think faculty tend to talk more about the intellectual content of the papers. And then once you start writing your own, of course, you do have to learn by learn by doing, but then, then people start saying, Oh, you know, this section should come later or it's too long, or you need more of this or less of that. Um, But it all kind of, uh, there's not kind of, yeah, I think, I think, you know, if, if more of us could have started out with, you know, a chapter like, like you had there um, and then, you know, find, found our own path and did our own writing, you know, with that as a foundation, I think people would be, uh, you know, much better off life could be easier.
1: No, that's exactly it. Right. I mean, there is a, there's a tremendous amount of room for creativity in what we do. And that creativity takes place in terms of the questions you're looking at and the methods you're going to use to answer those questions where, you where there is less room for creativity, and people might not know about it is in how we structure things and what order we present stuff, and you know what you know what a good conclusion contains, and things like that. And so, if I can eliminate the guesswork for people, um, and, and kind of point them to, hey, those are places where, There's a standard form and you should just stick with that standard, right? Like if if I can save you kind of two hours of guesswork about, well, should I have this subsection of my conclusion first or next or and so on? It's just uh, I think, again, if if I can save people some time and some mistakes, the book will have been a success by my standard.
0: Yeah. So why don't we? Um, we well, just briefly so that so people. I mean, they can look it up online and see the, the table of contents. But like, why don't we just briefly go through? You know what the what the major sections um, are uh, for for people and, and what, um, what they include. Sure. I've already talked about chapter two, which is writing
1: papers. Chapter three is about giving talks because after you've written a paper, very often you'll want to take it on the road and take it to conferences and present it in seminars and so on. Um, and so I start from the the notion that, you know, the invited seminar, the, the 60 to 90 minute seminar is kind of the the platonic ideal of a talk. But I also go into giving conference talks, giving lightning kind of talks. Um, and so on different types of talks that you can do, even including talking to kind of your kid's class or to to lay audiences. Um, chapter four is about navigating peer review, because after you've collected comments, all the comments you could collect on your work and you've made it better, you'll want to submit it somewhere. But a lot of people, again, right, this peer review process is kind of you and I are very familiar with it. But somewhat I remember the first time I submitted to a journal, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it, it took a lot of mentoring from my advisor to say, like, this is how, but this is what we should have in the cover letter. This is what you should, you know, this is what you submit and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's not, it's, it's an institution that is very, uh, again, very familiar to academics, but most people who, who have not apprehended life as an academic don't really know what to make of that peer review process. So that's chapter four. Chapter five is about getting funding, uh, where to find funding for your, for your research, how much funding you should ask for, how you should write a grant proposal, what you should think about in terms of kind of a project timeline, because I, you know, if there's anything that looks kind of like a regular project, I would say in government or the private sector is this, is is getting a grant, to, you know, getting a, a research project funded with grants. Um, chapter six is about doing service, which, you know, we are, whether you're in academia or not, there's plenty of opportunities to kind of help run the profession, right? To volunteer, to be on committees, to organize sessions at conferences, to edit special issues of journals and so on. That's all part of service. And without people kind of giving some of their time in service, there is not really an economics profession, right? It's, you know, you kind of clock in, clock out, and that's it. But it's more than that, as you know. And then chapter seven is about advising students. um, And chapter eight concludes. That's uh, it's a short book. It's 204 pages, I think. Um, and that's by design. I didn't want it to be too long, nor did MIT Press. Um, and I wanted it to be something that you can, you know, you go on a two and a half hour flight that you you take with you and you can read it kind of maybe not by reading every single word on every single page, but you can read it in two and a half hours and have a pretty like it makes you kind of a better, um, better
0: at your job by virtue of spending two and a half hours reading it. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, I think, uh, you know, reading a few sections, they're all kind of self-contained. So you can sort of focus on the ones that um, you have questions about or, or are going to be asked questions about, um, you know, at some, at some point in it and, uh, and then kind of get back to the other ones later. Um, so um, yeah. So why don't you, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of detail in there, um, you know, despite the you know, relatively short length, but still there's a lot of things to cover, which, which you do. Um, and some of them are, Things people may not even have thought of, but um, what are some of the more common misconceptions that new economists have, like think you know ideas they have about how things work that are just wrong or or way off base?
1: Yeah, I remember when I started taking guitar lessons when I was thirteen, and I was you know chatting with my guitar teacher. And at some point, very early on in my taking lessons with him, I naively declared that, you know, the people whose music you heard on the radio or music videos you saw on TV, you know, it was really top talent that was just kind of floating to the top. And, you know, what determined success in the music industry was talent. And, you know, my teacher kind of. Paused for about five seconds and looked at me in disbelief. And he must have said kind of the French Canadian equivalent of like, "Oh, bless your heart, right? You're such a naive." Um, and I think a similar misconception for new economists. You come into graduate school, it's first week, first year, and I think a lot of people believe that ideas, good ideas, will float to the top, right? That good ideas will prevail. That that is the prime determinant of success in in this job of ours and that is not true i mean a good idea is just that it doesn't speak for itself it doesn't have a network of people who speak in its favor and who kind of tell everyone excitedly about it and so i, I you know it's something that i wish weren't true i wish that good ideas prevailed and that you know top journals featured only the best ideas and that if you had a good idea it would de facto land in a top journal but that's that's unfortunately not true and and I think as an advisor, I work very hard to kind of manage my students' expectations, right? It's like, you you should never stop trying to submit to those top journals, but at the same time, don't expect that, you know, just because you think it's a great idea, and it may objectively be a really great idea, that it's going to necessarily go
0: there. because of Because of lack of, well, so, but you're saying it's not a matter of, you know, because it's uh, talent, although you know, I think there's certainly like a matter of you know luck and and genius of having the right idea. But you're saying it also has to do with uh, actions you can actually take to make sure that the right people know about your idea and are you know you get you know make the paper um, as as accessible and 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 powerful as possible.
1: Yes, right? to some extent, right? To some extent, there are certain things you can do. So, of course, the first layer of uh, of an idea not being able to speak for itself as well, you can speak for it, right? If you write in a way that is uh, easily apprehendable by people who are not directly experts on what you're doing, that really, really helps your paper go, or your idea go a little bit further. And if you kind of present it in front of the right Audiences, and if you can, you know, so that there are certain things that are within your control. There are certain things that aren't, right? So whether um, the right people will see whether the right people will see your paper presented somewhere is up to a point. Um, only up to a point within your control, I would say. You can you can submit to those conferences, but if it doesn't get picked up, then you know you have you may not necessarily have the right audience. Um, and so yes, there there is part that's within your control, part that's without.
0: So, so that kind of relates to the other question I, I had, you know, uh, there's, there's kind of a mystique among economists or, or a very sort of hierarchical sense of like, there's a, a top five journals and there's a top five departments. And of course, there's, there's 20 departments that think they're in the top five. But, you know, that, that's kind of like everything sort of rotates around them. And then you kind of get the sense from some discussions that like, that's the only thing. And it, and it, and it can be... And especially, I think that's, that happens partly because, you know, I guess, I don't know if you have more recent statistics, but like most of the, most of the PhDs teaching in universities in the US, you know, I forget the numbers, but a v- really, really large number come from, you know, five to 20 um, big name universities. And so the whole world kind of ends up revolving around them. But like, what's your view on kind of that system and how one can operate in it if you're not from it or you're not, you know, in it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely a life outside of the top five programs and outside of the top five journals. I mean, I did not go to a top five program, um, and as you know, and I've I've made what I think is a very good living. It's certainly a very good living by my standards, right? It's uh, I moved to the U.S. in two thousand one. I think I had something like you know five hundred dollars in my bank account, um, and I just kind of you know. Th- there was certainly a lot of of. I'm not saying that I started from nothing. Right. But I mean, both my parents pushed me to go to, to university and to get a master's, even though they they did not go to university. Um, and, you know, they supported me in the idea of doing a Ph.D. They didn't say, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to work for the family business or something. It, it was actually encouraged. Um, so there certainly is a great deal of privilege. On that end, but you know, I moved here. I had uh, I I had the contents of two suitcases and five hundred dollars, and I went through graduate school. And I, you know, I found tenure track positions, Um, and I failed along the way, certainly, and I succeeded along the way as well. It's not, you know, it's I would say the vast majority of the economics profession lives outside of the top five programs and publishes outside of the top five journals. And, you know, most people, I think if you were to to ask them, like, are you happy with where you are? Do you think, you know, do you count yourself as successful? They would say yes, right? There's, and I, I talk about that in chapter eight of the book. I close on that very idea that you can make your own definition of success. You don't need to adopt the prevailing view that, oh, well, if you don't, you know, if, if you don't go to Stanford and publish in an Econometrica five times over the course of your career, you're a failure, right? That's not true. Um, and it again, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't try to do those things. It doesn't mean that people should not apply to those top programs but at the same time they shouldn't let their happiness and they certainly don't get let their happiness get dictated by what a handful of tastemakers say do and think mm-hmm.
0: yeah i know that actually that, that phrase you just said of tastemakers i noticed that also in the um in the i think in your your book you were saying there's sort of there's an element where you know there's there's good ideas and there's you know bad ideas but there's also a lot of it is kind of taste driven and things are especially at the elite level, they're kind of driven by whether those tastemakers happen to be into a certain kind of stuff um, at, at, a, at a given point. Um, but I but I like your point that, you know, there's a lot, uh, there's, a, there's a wide, wide world outside of those, uh, the the zones that they kind of control.
1: No, that's entirely right. I mean, I don't want to name names or topics or anything. I don't want to make people identifiable. But I remember in, in my first job, I had a colleague who was working on something that you know, was that we, we both thought was of great importance for kind of for policy and for improving people's lives. Um, and it, he would submit it here and there. And he did very well by submitting. He, he ended up publishing some of that stuff in proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which is a very good hit. Right. And in top field journals, but he could never crack the top five with, with that topic. And he, one day he jokingly said, well, ju- just you wait like five, 10 years when they discover this in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and we kind of laughed it off like, you know, this. And and lo and behold, eventually one of the one of the economists at I think it was at Harvard turned their attention to that topic and it found itself I think in QJE or something. And so I mean, it, it you can almost kind of uh, you can almost kind of predict those things now, which is kind of interesting. Um, and really, it is a it is a matter of tastemakers, I think. At the end of the day, it's kind of like the
0: fashion world in some sense. Right. So if we if we strut our latest latest PhD student down the runway wearing something that five years ago we would have laughed at and called ridiculous, but if if it's done by the by the top the top designer, then then suddenly it becomes fashion and everyone needs to emulate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to take the analogy too far, but
1: you know, one of my my favorite films is Robert Altman's ready to wear. And I think if, if you've ever seen that movie and I encourage people to, to go and watch it, but like, I think the end of the film um, nicely encapsulates a lot of things about the
0: economics profession. Hmm. I don't think I've ever seen that one. I'll have to, I'll have to go, uh, go, go search it out. Um, Definitely heard about it for, for years. Um, all right. So, um, so uh, what are, what are you, um, you know, you've, you've had this uh, book out for a couple of months now and you've, you've done some talks with people about it. Like what kinds of, uh, are you getting any uh, pushback or disagreement um, from people on it or things that they find surprising? Uh, what are, what seems to be sort of having, you know, some things I imagine people who are reasonably tapped in would say, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that's how it is. And some things they might, they might might not be so much so uh yeah how are people reacting what are yeah, they
1: I'm trying to? to think of I, you know i don't i don't really have it's funny because i i do look at the the amazon ratings and and the goodread ratings and reviews because my uh because mit press told me that this was super important for post-release marketing is mainly why i care about those things so i want to see how many reviews there are on on both sites and the interesting thing is that um there's a crazy positive selection in who writes review in, in what kind of reviews get written up. Um, and so people who would kind of give it five stars are going to go and write a review and they're going to be super positive. Um, but then people who voted, like who, who rated two stars or three stars on Goodreads don't write a review. It's the people who are who are overwhelmingly positive that do, which I find really interesting um, in terms of like, you know, in terms of thinking about selection and, and then thinking about the rate when I look at ratings for other stuff that I want to buy.
0: Right. Right. Um,
1: I would say well, the one like for other stuff
0: you see people like come, you know, the, the, the one star people also do read, right. Because they, at least uh, I'm thinking, I guess I don't look at the ratings as much for books, but like certainly for, for other kind of stuff, it's, you know, if people complain about the, you know, they say the book arrived here,
1: <laughs> the book arrived <laughs> damaged. It's like, well, that's, yeah. you know, why would you rate the book one star? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 I only know of one instance of a book that got there damaged. I, I shipped, there, there was um, someone in India who wanted to call, and she had asked me for a copy of my book for a long time. And she said, can you please like sign it? And you please have your kid sign it too? Because I've been talking about my kid and stuff. Anyway, the book got into her hands, uh, water damaged, because I think it had been placed somewhere where where the package took water. Um uh, but but she, I don't think she went and rated it one star anywhere. Right. right, right. Uh, But, you know, more seriously, what what is the biggest I would say the only kind of negative pushback I have um, I've ex- that I've seen is so on Marginal Revolution. Uh, Tyler Cowen has every once in a while these what I've been reading posts, right, where he'll talk about like, you know, the five books he's been reading that month. And he listed my book in there and he said, yeah, most of the advice is spot on. Uh, but he said, you know, he he makes the economics profession look like this really kind of like uh, unhappy, dysfunctional space. And I was like, yeah, because it is. Because <laughs> if you don't think the economics profession is dysfunctional, um, you, need, you need to get out and go to conferences more because it is dysfunctional. And you need to kind of submit work to journals where they're going to tell you uh, to, you know, to, to be insulting and stuff like that. It's just like, I mean, at the end of the day, we hear about dysfunction because it is a dysfunctional profession and because there are, and professional failures to get fixed in there, um, and he also kind of noted that I don't talk about how to kind of uh, how to I guess how to inform policy or influence policy and inspire students and things. And th- those are all kind of good suggestions. That's stuff that I can. Uh, the books the book has sold reasonably well, I think, for a first book. Um, I would not be surprised if eventually there were a second edition, and so i I'm, I'm already kind of accumulating
0: stuff for a second edition. And that was really welcome suggestions right there. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, since students who work in, you know, applied economics, so a lot of, uh, I mean, I don't know about your research specifically, a lot of people in that area, certainly it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's not just academic work, it's, it's with the intention of making, you know, making the world work better in various ways. And so uh, figuring out how to get that, you know, not just convince the academic audience of, of reviewers, but also get that uh, in front of uh, policymakers seems like, does seem like an important issue.
1: Yeah. At the same time, you know, I mean, I have done my fair share of consulting, um, more for the public sector and kind of related kind of outfits than the than for. I've done a little bit for the private sector, um, but at the same time, it's uh, you know, how do you go and, and influence policy? I mean, you need to be, you know, I I don't think I can speak credibly on that. I can I can tell you how to kind of conduct yourself when you do consulting but i don't know how to say like this is how you influence policy um you know mostly probably by writing op-eds and things like that
0: yeah so maybe, maybe someone else needs to write that chapter you can you can have you can find a guest host who uh who does more of that stuff and has opinions or guest uh, guest writer yeah and i've done i mean i've
1: written a couple op-eds in in the new york times and the wall street journal but i don't know that they have influenced policy uh you know it i it would certainly make me happy, very happy if someone, you know, listened to this podcast and said, Hey, by the way, you know, we at this and that have read your op-ed on topic X and we decided to change things on the basis of what you said. But, um, I don't, I, I don't think I have that kind of reach even with an
0: op-ed in the New York times. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's not clear that anyone does. Um, you know, we all just, uh, kind of make our little incremental, uh, chips at the wall or whatever and try to, um, Move move people's thinking a little bit, but um, that's probably probably all you can do unless you're actually like in charge of something, um, and then you don't have time to actually learn what the research is. So that's the problem. Um, so um, I was interested one one just uh, uh my two cents on one thing I found you, you, when you mentioned in service I think the one thing I would I I thought that you kind of missed about refereeing um was that. That I I find it a really great way to, I I think reading other people's reports is tremendously valuable. Um, So, you know, you mentioned that like, it's, it's good to to read a lot of stuff, um, although that's kind of a mixed bag, because, you know, as you said, like what you referee, some of it will be bad, and it can be good to see bad stuff. So you get a sense of like, oh, okay, now I get why that's bad. And, you know, that'll give you ideas about how to make your own work better, as well as, you know, serving the profession by hopefully, you know, improving or or you know, gatekeeping around the really bad stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but also I think um, when you, when I read stuff that's, you know, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, like uh, most of the journals that I review for um, will also let me see the the editor's comments and the other referee reports. And that, that I think is really useful to sort of see, you know, uh, what other people's tastes are and what kind of, you know, errors or, or problems they see in a piece, which i and, and that's something that um, I think has improved my own writing as an academic. Uh, and so an extent like there's, I think, you know, older uh, senior faculty maybe grumble about doing a lot of referee reports and sort of, you know, complain about it. But I think junior faculty should, you know, would actually benefit from from pushing themselves, you know, putting themselves out there earlier and, and not complaining about it and realizing this is kind of like, it's kind of like your chance to do an academic seminar again, where, you know, you each have to write a paper or have to react to something and think about it. And then you, only after you've put yourself out there, do you see what anyone else thinks? Um, and I think that can be really helpful.
1: Yeah, I I sort of allude to that in the book when I say, if you know, don't get offended when an editor takes a decision that goes counter to what you told them. Uh, but ask yourself why it's happening if it happens very, very often, right? So if you if you constantly kind of find that editors will buck what you tell them right um ask yourself what might be happening there like are you too harsh are you too permissive um do you make comments that are off the mark and i think you're right i think reading other people's reviews can be instructive at the same time i I think it's instructive when you realize oh you know so and so you know reviewers two and three have the same concerns i had um where it's a little bit less instructive is is, and you know this because you've been doing this long enough, like I have, is in the fact that there's also a lot of idiosyncratic noise in the reviews that you get, um, and it it, you, this is what I would not want to hang my hat on, right? So if someone were to say, "Well, I'm gonna, I, I just got a decision email and a paper that I refereed," what am I to get out of those, um, of reading those other reviews? I would say, well, you know, the stuff that that the other reviewers agree with you on, you know you really want to kind of like work on that, right? You want to think, okay, well, I had a good instinct here. I kind of emphasized the right things uh, or the things that the other reviewers will agree on as between themselves and that the editor will say, yeah, you should go and do that, uh, I think is what what people should focus on. But it, it can be very easy to kind of... Um, miss the forest for the trees and start obsessing over like little things that you haven't seen that some other reviewer is mentioning because it's just their preferences or it's just some idiosyncratic thing.
0: Right, yeah, it's a, each 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 report that you write is kind of a small sample. So yeah, so if it's just one one person is really obsessed about yeah, some some tiny little, you know, methodological thing or you know, other cases I've just seen here, people like just hate an entire methodology. I mean, especially like I, I you know, I'm, I'm in, in political science as well. And so like there's very often that like someone will just be like, oh, you can't even, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> like that kind of research doesn't work. And they'll just kind of give this sort of answer sometimes, which is just they don't like that style, that methodology. And so there's nothing you could have done that could make, make someone happy, which I feel always very bad for the uh, for the the poor um poor person submitting that article, but, uh, but also not, not much of a lesson to be learned from that, except that some people have very, very strong tastes.
1: Yeah. Seven years or so ago. Um, so this is a paper that came out in 2015. So this must've been when I submitted it in 2013 or so. Uh, it's a paper about, about food prices and social unrest. I was the first to kind of make an effort at establishing causality, uh, between the two. And I first, I first sent it to an interdisciplinary journal, um, and one of the reviewers was, I think what, what you're kind of alluding to was kind of allergic to quantitative stuff. And this is a paper, this is an entirely empirical paper. I think there's a you know, there might be five equations in there that are all like linear regressions. They're all estimable equations. And uh I got like one of the reviewers at that journal kind of sent it back and the review was basically, why do you do so much math? To show me something I already know. And I was like, we come at we come at this from some some such different perspectives that there would be no ground for agreement ever. Like one, you don't think you can you can one, you already know the answer, which is not you know what most applied microeconomists start from. And two, if you think this is so much math,
0: uh, you haven't seen anything yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually that leads that is something else. Um so so how do you how, how much do you think um, this that your advice may travel or not uh, to other disciplines. Um, I, I think in political science, a lot of it overlaps, at least the quantitative parts that that methodologically are uh, you know more akin to economics. Um, but uh, have you have you talked to people in other disciplines um, about it?
1: I have talked to people in other disciplines. I've talked to political scientists about it. The ones that I know, of course, tend to be more quantitative. Uh, and they say that it's super useful to to what they're doing. I think um, one of my colleagues here at the university uh, had, had his copy lying around at home. And his daughter is a linguist. And she's a quantitative linguist. And you know, he had the book, I guess, in the living room somewhere. And she picked it up. She was visiting... Um, she was visiting her parents and she picked it up and she said, hey, there's some useful stuff for linguists in there, too. And that is an audience that I never thought I was going to reach. I thought, well, poli-sci for sure, business, public policy, uh, demography, quantitative sociology. But I never thought li- quantitative linguists would actually get something or at least one of them would get something out of my book. Uh, so I, I've heard positive feedback from people in, in mainly in political science, because those are the people that I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote it, the title notwithstanding, right? So the title is a marketing thing. Um, I'm always very careful to, to tell people, you know, this is, this is a book that every early career researcher who does quantitative social science or something adjacent to that can get something out of for their career. And, th- and that was my goal in writing it was to not make it just econ, And so, for instance, I had initially I had a chapter uh, in in the proposal. I had a chapter on the job market. And one of the reviewers said, take that out, the job market is evolving really quickly. Um, And in retrospect, what I find is that if I had made it, if I had had a chapter on the job market, it would have been like a little too econ, I think, for for that for those other audiences.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. That's actually I mean, partly because the job market is in in all disciplines is highly structured and i think there's yeah there's probably less commonality between even you know between econ and poli or other others uh uh fields than um than there is in you know the review process and stuff i suppose the one thing about the review process you know that that uh comes out in or, or about the you know the process of writing a paper and you know getting it out there that i think is different in in econ that i think sometimes surprises especially people in the natural sciences is the idea that we we're so open you know, you, you write basically a draft and then you start talking to people about it and you find out things you did wrong or that, you know, you should do better and kind of keep revising it and revising it. And then by the time it actually gets to a journal, it may well you know not be in any practical sense anonymous, even if they bother to, to try anonymizing.
1: You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I was thinking about that a couple nights ago where, yes, we pride ourselves on having kind of this, you know, open source research where. Um, you have your working papers on your website. Anyone can go and read them and people can, um, you know, people can make comments if they want to, and they can kind of like already start working on the next wave of kind of ideas that come from your work. And and to some extent, right? And I don't know what the right answer is. I'm just thinking out loud. Uh, and to some extent, that's a really great thing because for for all the reasons that I've just enumerated, right? We we have just this more open um i guess research dialogue than in some other disciplines like you know think about biomedical journals that embargo everything until it gets published by them and you can't really have preprints anywhere and stuff and that i find that i don't know that's that's just not how i think and how i'm wired but of course there's a but right and on the other hand what ends up happening is as you say the papers can float for so long you may have you know five different versions that have floated here and there and you submit your paper, and even for jur- for those journals that maintain double blind, people can still find out who wrote what paper. Um, so, at the American Journal of Econ, we maintain double blind, and I've kind of gone back and forth on is it a good idea? Should we go to single blind? Should we should we keep double blind? I think ultimately, for most papers, it doesn't really matter. If if the, I mean, I guess double blind just adds one layer of kind of transactions cost to to reviewers trying to figure out who wrote a paper if they really want to um and and you're right that what that does is that it really kind of uh i think it favors clubs i think it favors people whose work is already really well known or who are well connected or well liked and stuff like that and i and and that's kind of like the that's a double-edged sword of having kind of open
0: science like the way we do it in economics Mm -hmm. right yeah it's not just the sort of Although then, then yeah, in the rare cases when I do actually get a paper sent to me that like is, yeah, is good. And I've just literally never seen it before. I always think like, why did this person not, not go and do the conferences? And you know, why, why are they not getting the paper out there? And it's just like, they're exactly. hiding no, and then, I mean, boom, with I've, this thing, you know.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's wrong, right. What's wrong with this paper that this hasn't been presented anywhere, that it's not posted somewhere where people would want to publicize it. Um, and it's, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that this is the right way to think about this. I'm just saying it's kind of this weird reaction that's wired into us by the fact that we
0: are such an open sciencey profession. Mm-hmm. So. So your, your book is, it, um, you know, very nicely focused on, you know, how, how things are and, you know, indirectly or directly at various points, comments on, you know, whether that's actually a good thing or not. But like, um, uh, what would be, you know, if you were, uh, I mean, there is no King of that conference, it's a community, but like if you, if you had influence or if you would push the discipline in, in a direction to change some things about how it, how it currently functions, what would be, what would be changes you would make?
1: If I could wave a magic wand and get my wish about this profession, the first thing I would hope for is more diversity. Um, And diversity in terms of, you know, ethnic backgrounds and in terms of gender, in terms of sexual orientation, you know, the standard... Kind of DEI things, but also diversity in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of um, whether someone is first generation or not. I, I think there's. I think the lack of diversity hurts us in many, many ways. Uh, and if I if I could have my wish, that's that would be my first thing on my wish list is diversify the economics profession. Because um, someone tweeted yesterday. I think it was Luis Baldomero uh, at uh, at William and Mary who said. Uh, you want a diverse profession because you don't want people who all come from the same set influencing policy because they might have no idea what they're, what, what they're actually trying to influence on the ground. They might have never met, you know, someone who's going to be affected by the policy. And, and you need those voices of people who may eventually be affected by a policy or by some kind of, you know, something that's going to change as a result of research. You want them in the room or at least in the profession to kind of say, hey, you know what, this might not affect people the way you think it will. Um, and I think that's, that's tremendously important. That would be my first thing.
0: So, so that that's, uh, um, well, that's not, not necessarily an outcome, but it's kind of, it's kind of an outcome, which would lead to other outcomes, but like, what would be the, uh, how, how would we get there? That's why I said or, magic wand, Peter. I mean, I, right. okay. you know, I, mean, I <laughs> that one magic wand, step two, more diversity, yeah. step three, better yeah. research. Okay.
1: Yeah, look, we you know, I, I have I have an article that's forthcoming on this. Um, my former PhD student, Jeff Bloom, and I launched the online ag and resource economics seminar in the early months of the pandemic. So on May 6, 2020, we had our first online talk and we've kept it going. We've now had something like seventy-five plus seminars in that series, and we're gonna keep it going for, you know, I think for as long as we can see that people are interested in it. And one of the things that we've done is is we have written um, so the ag uh, Economics Association has uh, has its own kind of, you know, if you think of the American Journal of Agricultural Economics as the kind of the flagship journal of that association, they also have a journal that's kind of like the JEP. It's called Applied Economic Perspectives and Policy. And so Jeff and I wrote a paper for AEPP, for Applied Economic Perspectives and Policy, that is titled something like the Contribution of the uh, Online Ag and Resource Economics Seminar to DEI. And so we cover a lot of that stuff in there and and you know the first thing you want to fix is the leaky pipeline right I mean you first off you want you you want more diversity to select into studying economics I remember when I was an econ major at the University of Montreal I think we were the least gender diverse program after like engineering maybe um so you know, it, it was a lot of guys. It was not that many women. The, the the women that were in there had to have a very thick skin to kind of to be able to kind of withstand all the comments that they would hear, which some of them were just awful. Um, and so you first, thought, you know, first you want to kind of select people. You you want you want diversity to select into studying economics, and then you want you, you want to fix the leaky pipeline, right? Because along the way, we lose a lot of would be diversity to, to other fields, to, uh, to other, other professions. And so there are many places to start and there are many things that need to be fixed all at once, I think, in order to kind of get my wish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess it is. There's a lot of, a lot of complementary, or or a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things are complementary to each other. And, you know, if you only fix one without the other, it doesn't, doesn't get you very far. And, and each of them individually is, there's only so much you can do with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I was trained as a development economist. And one of the things that that um, Chris Barrett, who was my advisor, taught, the very first thing he taught in, um, in his grad class was persistent poverty, chronic underdevelopment are the result of multiple market failures. It's not just one, it's many of them. And if you fix only one, you have barely made a dent in the problem. You need to fix them all at once in order to kind of get people on the road to prosperity and to riches. And so that's how I like to think too of this problem.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess so. So maybe on that note, we we can conclude on that note and say, you know, certainly your, your book is one, one element of that, right? So people who have, uh, you know, a lot of this knowledge is kind of like, you have to have an advisor who, has the energy and has the insight and self-awareness to realize what they did to succeed and also to realize, you know, sometimes what they did to succeed, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 years ago is not what you need to succeed in the, in the present moment. And so, um, having this, this book, uh, from someone like you, who's really been paying attention to how things, how things are and how things are evolving, um, is a great resource for, uh, for people coming from, uh, you know, any, any part of the profession to sort of have a better sense of how it all, how it all fits together. Um have a little bit less of a barrier to to improving themselves. Thank you. those are
1: great words to say about my book, Peter. Thanks.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, so we'll stop there and uh, again, thank you very much for um for coming on the show and uh, and for writing this book. Thank you for having me.